Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And a warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Friday. TGIF, everyone, and a jam-packed show as always coming up, including... A meeting milestone. President Biden hosting a trilateral summit with the leaders of Japan and South Korea at Camp David. That begins in around two hours time. It's actually the first ever high level talks between the three nations, Japan and South Korea, putting aside years of fraught relations to strengthen security ties and take a tougher stance on regional players like China and North Korea. A live report just ahead. Plus, Horrible Hillary, the U.S. Southwest bracing for a weather wallop this weekend as a strengthening hurricane gets set for landfall. Significant flooded is expected in a part of the nation that's been starved of rain up to now. And it feels like the first time finale for Sunday's Women's World Cup showdown between Spain and England. A first for both teams. Will the Lionesses be a roaring success, she asks. Complete coverage just ahead. Also this Friday, problems on the pitch for global investors. U.S. stocks on track for a fourth straight day of losses. Tech actually coming off its worst three-day run now since February. Markets pressured by, of course, a sharp move higher in global bond yields. The bond route sending U.S. 30-year mortgage rates high past 7%. That's actually a more than 20-year high. Just to be clear, uncertainty too over China's growing property crisis is also placing pressure across global markets. One-time property giant Evergrande filing for bankruptcy protection in the United States on Thursday. Evergrande helping spark the Chinese property developer crisis, which continues to this day with a number of major developers also defaulting on their debts, sparking repeated calls for Beijing to do more to support the economy. No surprise, as you would imagine, in the face of all of that, another tough day of trade for the Asia majors. The Hang Seng dropping some 2%. It's now actually fallen into bear market territory. So that's a 20% drop from its recent highs. The Nikkei there too, slumping more than 3% this week also. Plenty to get to as always. But first we do begin in Moscow, where Russia temporarily closed all major airports in the city earlier after an alleged drone strike. Moscow's mayor says Russian air defenses shot down a drone overnight, saying debris debris fell near Moscow's expo center. Meanwhile, better news for Ukraine. A U.S. official says Washington is committed to approving the transfer of F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine as soon as training is complete. The Netherlands is hailing the move as a major milestone. Let's get to the very latest with Nada Bashir. Nada, good to have you with us. Great news for Ukraine, but it comes down to that key factor of training. Where are we on the training? and Do we have a sense of how long it will take to complete? 
Absolutely. Training being the key element here, and that is something that could take months. We heard yesterday from the Ukrainian Air Force spokesperson saying that they certainly won't have pilots ready to operate these advanced U.S.-made jets before the end of this year. That means uh, the next autumn and winter will be spent fighting on the front lines and that counteroffensive ongoing. Without these F-16s that President Zelensky and the Ukrainian government have been asking for since the very early stages of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, of course, this is uh, a more positive indication from the Biden administration. They say they are ready to approve the transfer of these jets as soon as that training is complete. That training is set to be carried out in conjunction with America's EU partners. And it was anticipated initially that that training would begin this month. That is certainly not the case. Ukraine's Air Force says they are hoping this will begin in the near future. And in the meantime, the Biden administration is said to be conducting talks with other EU partners in possession of these F-16s in the hopes of securing further countries who will participate and work with the U.S. to supply the Ukrainian Air Force with these all-important jets. Now, of course, we know that Denmark and the Netherlands are playing a crucial role here. The European partners are uh, taking a lead on these training protocols, which are still uh, in the works. But as soon as that process is approved and underway, this will be a hugely significant step for Ukraine. The Ukrainian president himself uh, hopeful that this could mark a shift and a positive boost in Ukraine's counteroffensive. Thank you for that. Now, Japan says it scrambled fighter jets earlier Friday after Russian Air Force planes were seen over the Sea of Japan and East China Sea. It comes as Japan's prime minister prepares to join the presidents of the United States and South Korea at Camp David. The meeting, which begins in a couple of hours' time, is the first ever three-way summit between the nations. Ivan Watson has more on this. Ivan, I think we have to explain how monumental it is that South Korea now appears ready and willing to enlist in a U.S.-led trilateral alliance with Japan. Sort of unimaginable even just two years ago. What might it mean in practice? Well, it's certainly uh, something that I don't think the Chinese government particularly likes. Uh, And uh, we had the Chinese foreign minister speaking out against this earlier this year, kind of chastising uh, the leaders of Japan and South Korea, saying, hey, you could dye your hair blonde, but you can never become a Westerner. You should stay close to your roots. Uh, But what is is helping drive uh, Japan and uh, South Korea, two countries that have uh, very tragic and traumatic shared colonial history together, uh, what is driving them together uh, in, in such a kind of dramatic fashion, this is the first trilateral summit involving the U.S., I believe, is national security issues. Look at the tweets that were put out by Japan's uh, Prime Minister, Fumio Kishida, uh, right before he uh, flew out for the U.S. for this meeting in Camp David. Uh, he said that he'd be, he'd be visiting, uh, and as the security environment surrounding uh, the area becomes increasingly severe, it is extremely significant for the leader to come together under the same roof. He's going to reinforce uh, strategic cooperation further. And as a case in point, uh, you had Japan scrambling fighter jets today in response to two Russian reconnaissance planes that flew between the Korean peninsula, the strait between the Korean peninsula 
and Japanese islands today. And earlier this week, Japan's Ministry of Defense uh, expressing grave concern when it detected uh, a flotilla of 11 Russian and Chinese uh, warships that were sailing to the southwest of the island of Okinawa, uh, with Japan saying this is the first time ever that they've seen this. The Chinese government has come out and said, hey, oh, they were operating according to international rules. This is in international waters. But what you see is in addition to the constant kind of threat and saber rattling that comes from North Korea, firing missiles, which worries both South Korea and Japan. You have a tightening of the relationship between China and Russia, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, China's threats to Taiwan, and that's helping bring together South Korea and Japan and the U.S. uh, in a way that we've never seen before between these three governments. Yes, and we'll see what this meeting brings. Ivan, good to have you. Thank you, Ivan Watson there. Now, Hurricane Hillary has been upgraded to a Category 4 storm as it barrels towards Mexico and the U.S. southwest. Derek Van Dam joins us now with what more we can expect. Um, Derek, great to have you on the show. I know slight deviations even in this hurricane can fundamentally change things, but what are we expecting at least at this moment? Yeah, Julia, this, this storm just absolutely blew up overnight. It, it uh, strengthened by 120 kilometers per hour in a matter of 24 hours, so uh, rapid intensification. Now we've got a whole slew of warnings and watches in place across the central and southern Baja California Peninsula. But likely, as we get more updates from the National Hurricane Center, these will be extended further and further north. And we included Southern California on this map because that's next. This could be one of the first times that uh, we ever have a tropical uh, watch in, in, included for Southern California. So something we're going to monitor. But nonetheless, this is a powerful Category 4 hurricane. It is a major hurricane. It's churning south of Cabo San Lucas. They will get some of the outer bands, anticipate uh, tropical storm force winds there, but not a direct landfall near the southern tip of the Baja Peninsula. Look as it veers towards the north and west, and it weakens as it does so. You see, the storm is going to be encountering significantly cooler water. So that's going to help weaken the storm as it makes its approach on the southwestern portions of the U.S. Where does it cross landfall? Well, this is a game of kilometers, right? And it matters where it actually makes that landfall because if it's a little further west, offshore, we get more coastal impacts. If it's further east, more inland, then we see more of a flash flood threat. Don't want to diminish it. There's still a flash flood threat for a large portion of the southwestern U.S. Look at this, a very rare uh, level four of four from the Weather Prediction Center. That is a high risk of flash flooding across the central interior of Southern California. We have a moderate risk for San Diego and just outside of Los Angeles. And look how far that moderate risk extends, all the way to Las Vegas. So these are major population densities. Now, why do we care? Well, let's go back to last year, 2022. This unfolded in Death Valley, where we only received 37 millimeters of rain. On average, they received 53 millimeters of rain in an entire year. With this particular system, with the remnants of Hurricane Hillary that will move through this area, it's expected to bring over 75 millimeters of rain. So we will easily get a year's worth of rain or more in a couple of days. That puts it into context, right? So flash flood threat, very major. And again, depending on the exact track of where the storm goes, does it interact with the topography of the Baja Peninsula? Time will tell. We're honing in on the details, but one thing's for sure. The southwestern U.S. and the extreme northwestern sections of Mexico have a rough next 48 hours ahead with flooding, mudslides, landslides, and hurricane to tropical storm force winds all on the table. Julia? Wow. We wish everybody there safe and well. Derek, thank you. 
Okay. Okay, now as people in Hawaii count the terrible cost of disastrous wildfires, the chief of Maui's emergency management service has resigned from his post. Outrage is growing in the wake of the fires that have claimed at least 111 lives. CNN's Randy Kay reports. So many of us residents felt like we had absolutely no warning. Hawaii has one of the largest public safety outdoor siren warning systems in the world. Sirens that were silent as wildfires raged. Question is, why? First, it was this. You would not have saved those people on the, on the mountainside. Do you regret not sounding the sirens? I, I do not. The sirens, as I had mentioned earlier, is used primarily for tsunamis. That's what the head of Maui's emergency management agency said Wednesday before suddenly resigning a day later. But even before that press conference ended, his reason had changed, this time suggesting the sirens weren't used because people wouldn't have been able to hear the warning. It's an outdoor siren, so a lot of people who are indoors, air conditioning on, whatever the case may be, they're not going to hear the siren. Plus, the winds were very gusty and everything. I heard it was very loud, and so they wouldn't have heard the sirens. Same story with Hawaii's governor. First this. Sirens were typically used for tsunamis or hurricanes. To my knowledge, at least I never experienced them uh, in use for fires. Then minutes later, another explanation. This time, the governor suggested at least some of the sirens were broken. The sirens were essentially uh, immobilized, we believe, we believe, by the extreme heat that came through. Some were broken and we're investigating that. Yet that doesn't all track with the county's own webpage, MauiSirens.com, which clearly states how the siren system is capable of alerting residents to multiple disasters, including wildfires. Emergency alert. And we also found this explainer about the sirens' uses on Hawaii's Emergency Management Agency's webpage. We also use sirens for hurricanes, brush fires, flooding, lava, hazmat conditions, uh, or even a terrorist event. This map, also from the county's page, shows where the warning sirens are located. According to the state, there are about 400 sirens statewide, including 80 on Maui. And in the historic town of Lahaina, where more than 100 people were killed in the flames, there are five sirens. Five sirens that were not used to warn those in grave danger. Instead, officials say they chose to send alerts by text message to cell phones, as well as alerts on landlines and through TV and radio. It is our practice to use the most effective means of conveying an emergency message to the public during a wildlife, wild, wildland fire. While that may have worked in some cases, the wildfire moved so swiftly it knocked out power and cell service. So how were residents supposed to receive those warnings? There's no warning at all. There's not a, a siren, not a phone alert, not a nothing, not a call. Randy Kay, CNN. Okay, coming up on First Move, a truly incredible story revealed in this new book. The Afghan woman who educated herself, escaped Taliban rule and went on to a high-flying career in America. That's next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to First Move. This week marks two years since Kabul fell to the Taliban, the fundamentalist group seizing control of Afghanistan following a chaotic, controversial withdrawal by the United States after nearly 20 years of fighting. The United Nations is urging the international community not to forget the suffering of its people, including the severe restrictions imposed on the rights of both women and girls. Quote, their rights to access education and work, their freedom of movement and participation in daily and public life have been eroded by a series of discriminatory edicts issued since the takeover. The treatment of some women and girls in Afghanistan has been laid bare by my next guests. Sola Mahfouz risked everything to get an education. At 16, she taught herself maths and English in secret online. She sneaked into Pakistan to take her SAT test before finally escaping Afghanistan with her family to the United States. And her will and perseverance paid dividends. Today, she's a quantum computing researcher at Tufts University in Massachusetts. Her memoir, called Defiant Dreams, was co-written by the human rights activist Malena Kapoor. And I'm very pleased to say they both join me now. Sola, Malena, it is a huge honor to have you on the show. And I love the book. It was both um, heartbreaking, I think, and heartwarming uh, in equal measure. Uh, Sola? I want to begin with you because this book at its core is about your fight for freedom, your fight, I think, for the right to an education and the will, the strength to risk it all in pursuit of that. Where did that come from? Where did that strength and desire come from? So thanks for having us. Um, you know, at, uh, you know, my grandfather was self-educated and so, you know, at age 16, I did not know how to add and subtract. And that was because uh, when I was 11 years old, a group of men came to our door and threatened us if I continued going to school. And from that day on, the restriction on my life continued to increase. You know, I left home only a couple of times a year. And whenever I did, I had to wear the suffocating burqa that covered me from head to toe. Meanwhile, my brothers were going to school and they were thriving academically and I was deeply jealous of their lives. And in those times, for me, the world seemed like a like dark place. And, and you know, my grandfather said that education is like a way, opening a window to the world. And I needed that window and that light to shine in. And so I start secretly start teaching myself English, math and defiant dreams tells the story of how I went from not knowing how to add and subtract in age 16 to all the way come here now in the US uh, 
doing physics, becoming a physics researcher at Tufts University, develop quantum algorithms. It's just, it is an amazing story. And there was actually so much in that. But one of the things that gave me goosebumps in the story, you said you began to grow up the, mo the day that your mother told you to be quiet. She was afraid of your laughter. You were threatened, men threw excrement at you. You were um, threatened with acid. I mean, people have to understand, I think, what living was like. And this was while the United States, let's be clear, and, and NATO was there. But you also tell the story of your aunt's fight for education, your mother's fight for education, and your grandfather. Um, Melena, just talk about this, because I know this is also part of the reason why you're also involved in telling this story, because this is Sola's story, but it's true for many women as well. Absolutely. You know, I think I was initially drawn to Sola's story just on the face of it, just how inspiring it is. You know, the fact that she could only secretly educate herself using an extremely slow dial-up internet connection. You know, the fact that she had to study in the middle of the night because that was the only time she wasn't required to cook and clean as a member of her household. Um, but in many ways, the deeper reason I wanted to be a part of this is because this is Sola's story, but it's also a story of mothers and daughters and the fact that history is moving backwards in Afghanistan. You know, Sola's own mother was a student at Kabul University and then a professor there. She would have students who were older than her. She would fill her classrooms. But then she had to watch as her own daughter couldn't even finish an elementary school level education. And now, of course, that's a story that's echoing across the country. And it felt really important to help amplify those stories. Yeah, and you really did that so well. Sola, you mentioned... Um, in a way, the heartbreak of watching your brothers get educated, be allowed to go to university. And I know you actually asked your brother for help and and he refused, which I think is a fundamental part of this story is the sort of women's fight for education and the will to do more actually than just be a housewife and the pressure from the male line, although your grandfather, of course, is an exception and a, a sort of blinding light in this story as well. Um, just describe that moment when you finally got to university in, in Chicago and you realized you didn't have to cover yourself anymore. I mean, the life adjustment that you, you went through there. I think for me, um, when I, it felt surreal, like I have thought, like, you know, I was reading books and, you know, in some ways when I started learning, I felt intellectually free. But, uh, you know, but only when I come to the U.S., I felt there was, you know, I just felt like I was back. I was 11 year old because, you know, I could leave home without uh, like a burqa and it just like the boundaries from home to streets was kind of there was there was kind of no boundaries. And so I think that was really freeing. What do you think it is about the about the Taliban, about to a larger degree, I think, the culture as well that tries to prevent women doing more, being more, getting educated. Melena, start, start us off. Um, you know, I think that there's, in the book we cover so many um, generations of history and, and this repression of women really isn't just unique to the Taliban. It's, it's something that has unfortunately unfolded across the country really because women haven't ever been in a position of power for long enough to ensure that with the next political wins, their rights aren't taken away. Um, you know, Sola's mother, her grandmother, her aunts, all of them went through similar uh, struggles. The fact that her sisters were just born a few years older than her, uh, earlier than her, and then they 
had to live lives of arranged marriage at the age of 16 or 17. You know, this is not a story that only takes place over the last 20 years when the United States was involved in Afghanistan, but the repression of women is something that's stretched on for so much longer. Yeah, and you do a brilliant job actually of telling that story of the of the generations of their fight and older generations succumbing to what's expected of them rather than following their dreams in a way Sola that you managed to you were going to say something Sola please I think it's also important to uh, think to look back like Afghanistan was not always like that you know the progress there was a lot of progress happening back when the king of in the 60s when liberalization started to happen women were going to university and you know it, it's like the extremism is not part of the culture it has because of the political mm. you know outside political influences it 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 has become what it is now yeah, that's such a great point yeah it's such a great point to make and obviously you were in Kandahar as well which was sort of the spiritual home of uh, of the Taliban so we have to be very clear on that too and and you again you do that in the book there was so much hope in the past and I know your aunt as well studied in 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 Russia got a scholarship to Russia and had a very different life um you know something that also came into my mind reading this book was the protests that we're seeing in Iran over women covering themselves, covering their hair. And, and Sola, it sort of reminded me of some of the comments you've made and you've touched on it with what the Afghan burqa represented to you and what removing that in particular meant. So I think it's again comes to the, you know, being forced to do what you, you know, being forced to cover and it's like, you know, I think what we expect, you know, it's just, you have this one identity. Mm. And I think that's what I'm, um, yeah, yeah, it's just one, like as a human, we should be free to be, how do we express ourselves? And if some outside t person telling us that's how we should be, then I think that feels very suppressive, suppressing in it. I think it's a, you know, it's a symbol of, of, other, of all other choices that we make. Yeah, it should be okay to fight for more, to have more. Uh, Melena, what do you want people to take away from this book? And I do recommend people read it for many reasons. What do you want the takeaway to be? You know, I think, especially on this anniversary, it's so important to just sit and acknowledge the tragedy of what's happening with women's rights in Afghanistan right now. You know, as you mentioned, for those of us who've grown up in the United States or in the West, it can sometimes be hard to understand just how difficult life is there. The fact that there were moments when Sola wasn't allowed to laugh in her own home. You know, I'm reminded of a story of the first time that Sola's mother had to wear a burqa and her young son saw her and actually thought, that she had gone blind because he'd never seen such a restrictive covering before. And his family laughed at him in that moment because of course you can see a little bit through the crisscross slats over the eyes. But upon reflection really, his innocent assessment was so correct that in that moment she had lost everything and in many senses she had gone blind. And now that's a story we see in so many households across Afghanistan. And it's important that that doesn't become normalized because when we normalize the oppression of women, we all lose so much. Milena, do you mind me asking how old you are? I'm 20. Yeah, I think um, our audience need to understand, as I get a frog in my throat listening to you speak, um, Sola, I mentioned how amazing your achievements are, that you have this astonishing career quantum researcher in, in the United States, which is an incredible 
um, achievement, but it came, leaving Afghanistan came at a huge price too. Your mother was very badly injured and that's also part of the story that comes out. Um, I wanted to ask about how your mother's doing and what, what your friends and what your family back home think of, of what you've achieved and whether that's managed to inspire others. I hope it has. Um, they are proud and, uh, you know, my mom has been a source of light uh, for me, even in the darkest times. And, you know, she was, she would always tell me stories of her when she was a professor at Kabul University, having classrooms full of students. And, um, you know, Define Dreams is my story, but it's also her story. And I hope to live what she, to, I hope to live to have what once she had. And, you know, it's just the politics that, you know, that has, you know, destroyed everything and it taken away everything for her. And I hope that in some small ways I'm able to, you know, you know, give back to that my young mom who once lost everything. I agree, because it is your mother's story too. Thank you, ladies. I recommend people read the book. <laughs> You'll have this reaction. Girls, thank you. Sola, Melena, talk so to us soon. Thank you. Thank you for writing Bye. an amazing book. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks up and running for the final time this week. A little bit of Friday fatigue as the challenging week for investors stumbles to a close. Call it a case of misery loves company. Both stock and bond prices have been on the decline on concerns that the Federal Reserve will have to continue hiking rates to battle inflation. Now, we should get a better idea of the Fed's future plans next week when Chair Powell gives his latest economic outlook at the annual Fed retreat in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. So get ready for that. In the meantime, Bitcoin far from a safe haven during this mid-August angst. The cryptocurrency down more than 5%. It tumbled almost 10% late Thursday. And there were also reports that Elon Musk's SpaceX has sold virtually all its Bitcoin holdings. SpaceX, however, reportedly turning a Q1 profit, even with Bitcoin off the docket. Just to be clear, the Wall Street Journal reporting that SpaceX has been selling at least some of its holdings of Bitcoin, which it wrote down by over $370 million in the past two years. Now, CNN has been unable to verify the sell-off. One broker was quoted saying the news sparked a panicked reaction in the crypto market. Elon Musk has been a vocal proponent of Bitcoin and other crypto. Now, Claire Duffy joins us on this. I read the whole thing from Wall Street Journal, and actually it was a case of hold your horses with the Bitcoin thing. We don't really have any clarity on who did what when, but there's a broader shakedown going on in risk assets and Bitcoin's in that too. Yeah, Julie, it's interesting because Elon Musk has been such a big proponent of Bitcoin and of crypto more generally. But, you know, you see him starting to dump some of his holdings from his companies. Tesla sold off a big chunk of its Bitcoin holdings last year. And I think this really underscores what a significant influence he and his companies have in this crypto market. But of course, as you said there, this Thursday sell-off came amid a broader stock market sell-off. You have lots of investors that are trying to dump some of these riskier assets over concerns in the sort of economic precarious moment that we're in. 
And Thursday's sell-off hit, you know, hit the stock market. It hit even traditionally safer bets like government bonds. And so I think sort of a gloomy outlook for investors in these riskier markets like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Yeah. I mean, at the core of cryptocurrencies really was the um, bad behavior of central banks in particular. So when they're raising rates, um, the argument perhaps um, falters. But to your point, it's far more complicated than that always. And of course, you know, we're in this moment where crypto is facing significantly significant regulatory pressure in the Absolutely. US, which is probably contributing as well. Yeah. And also Elon has to stick to the program on SpaceX rather than perhaps um, freewheeling on other things. Mm-hmm. Claire Duffy, thank you. Okay, staying with space and the world is witnessing a new era of exploration. India's lunar lander is in its final stage before it attempts touching down on the surface of the moon over the coming days. But another country might beat them to it. Russia says its new spacecraft could land on the moon as early as Monday. It's a space off. CNN's Michael Holmes has more. The race is on to explore the far reaches of the moon. Russia launching its first lunar lander in 47 years with the hopes of beating out the competition and becoming the first country to make a soft landing on the south pole of the moon. If successful, the Lunar 25 mission would be an astronomical comeback for Russia, reclaiming some of the glory from its Soviet-era space heyday and putting it at the forefront of a new push by several countries to explore the deep craters of the shadowy part of the moon that's believed to contain water ice. The liftoff was delayed for nearly two years, partially because of the backlash over Russia's invasion of Ukraine, with the European Space Agency pulling key camera equipment from the project. And even though Luna 25 is now aloft, it's not alone in its endeavours. The Indian spacecraft Chandrayaan-3 is already in lunar orbit and on Thursday India's space agency announced the lander module had successfully separated from the propulsion module, even quoting the lander as saying, thanks for the ride mate. They're now eyeing a soft landing spot on the moon on August 23rd, two days after Russia's ambitious target landing date. But both missions will have to avoid the fate of the Chandrayaan-2 in 2019, which crash-landed on the moon's surface. Other nations are in the moon race. Earlier this month, the crew of NASA's Artemis II mission inspected the Orion spacecraft that is set to orbit the moon with astronauts on board late next year. Artemis III will follow, with plans to land a crewed spacecraft on the lunar south pole, but NASA says this mission could be changed or delayed if a landing system created by SpaceX isn't ready on time. China also says it plans to land astronauts on the moon by the end of the decade, something NASA says is worrying if they get to the moon's south pole first and claim it as their territory. So naturally... I don't want uh, China to get to the South Pole first with humans and then say, this is ours, stay out. Both the US and China, in collaboration with Russia, have advanced plans to build bases on the moon and finding water ice, which could be used to make fuel, oxygen and drinking water, will be important to sustain those sites and the long-term ambitions of several space agencies. Michael Holmes, CNN. 
Coming up on First Move, miniature golf, but with giant ambitions. The Swingers golf club chain, hoping for a hole-in-one as it expands from London to the US and beyond. But the question is, can it win over the high rollers in Las Vegas? We'll be right back. No ifs and or pots. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to First Move. The post-pandemic urge to splurge on experiences and dining out remains in full swing around the globe. Good time for swing for the fences growth for the eagle eye entrepreneurs behind the Swingers Crazy Golf Club chain. Call Swingers, if you will, a hole-in-one, all-in-one experience. It's a miniature golf course that also serves cocktails and gourmet street food. The first Swingers Club opened in London 10 years ago. It now has venues in both New York and Washington, D.C., and the firm just raised $52 million to fund a further franchise expansion, Las Vegas and Dubai. Locations are coming soon. Now, Matt Grecksmith joins us now. He's from London and he's the co-founder and co-CEO of Swingers. Matt, fantastic to have you on the show. Just talk us through what Swingers offers. So Swingers is, it takes the classic game of mini golf, but makes it into a somewhat more grown-up experience. So as you kind of alluded to before, we've taken the activity but put it into a very theatrical, immersive environment. It's based on an English country golf club, all indoors. But we've added great cocktails, fantastic gourmet street food. And when you come in, we have uh, amazing staff, including caddies, who will take your drinks orders when you're on the course, because we believe that a drink or two helps with your mini golf game. And uh, they'll give you tips and tricks as you go around as well. So it just is a very theatrical, immersive and slightly competitive uh, evening out. I'm sure the drinks help with your uh, evening. I'm not sure whether they help with your golf game. Um, <laughs> I'm just wondering who the client is. I, I would assume sort of bread and butter is corporate events, getting people out of the office and, and socialising. But who's actually coming and, and how often are they coming? Is it people coming for repeat events or is it one and done? Uh, that's a great question. Um, it's When you look at some of our venues, for instance, our venue in New York is booked out something like 80% of the time. So in any week, we'll have seven to 8,000 people coming through the doors. So it's actually a really broad swathe of people that are coming in. Uh, On the weekend, it'll be groups of friends uh, coming in to celebrate a birthday, lots of dates, uh, but lots of group activities as well. Lots of corporates who are coming in uh, either for client entertaining or looking after their teams. So it's this massively broad appeal because at its heart, crazy golf or mini golf, whichever you call it, um, is this nostalgic, fun, accessible activity. And then the way that we've wrapped the street food in, you know, you can grab a pizza or a delicious burger. So there's something there for everybody, whatever your taste. And it's this fun, 
uh, laid back, um, whimsical environment. So it's not pretentious. We're not like some trendy club where we're looking people up and down. So it's just this totally broad swathe of people. We've had everything from, you know, groups of people coming in to celebrate 18th, 19th, 20th birthdays. And we've even done some 80th birthdays as well. Yeah, well, you've got restrictions on that, of course, in the United States um, below 21. So it's a little bit different. But what you're saying is you're open seven days a week and in the daytime too. Yeah, very slightly. But yeah, um, most of our venues are open either six or seven days a week. Um, and they open from uh, lunchtime onwards because what we see now is, especially the corporates, they like to do their corporate entertaining during work hours. Some of them um, feel that they don't want to push their uh, corporate activities to outside of work hours. So it's crazy. I'll walk into one of our venues on a Wednesday afternoon at 2 p.m. and they'll be packed full of people socialising, competing on the courses, grabbing some food, having a few drinks. Um, so, yeah, that goes all the way through the day and into the evenings as well. What does it cost and what's the average spend per person that, that attends that? How long do they stay uh, for? So the average dwell time is in the region two to two and a half hours. So you'll come in, you might have a drink, uh, you might grab some food, then you'll hit the course. A round of golf takes 30 to 40 minutes, depending on how long, uh, how busy the, the venue is. Um, but each course is nine holes. Uh, and then you'll probably grab some uh, another drink afterwards and maybe some more food. Our spend per head varies um, in the US uh, around 40 to $45 if you're an online booker, someone who's booked a ticket um, and just come in with their friends. But then with the corporate customers uh, where they're booking a package and possibly booking um, a private room to host their event in, um, then the average prices are up towards $70, $80 a head, depending on the location and the time of day. Yeah, because I was going to say 40 to $45 isn't going to get you very far if you're buying a couple of drinks, the food and, and the entry cost. What's the entry cost or is that sort of automatically assumed? Uh, so the entry cost, it, that covers the round of golf. So yeah. in the UK, that's around 13, 14 pounds. Uh, in the US, okay. it's about $25. But so we're quite democratically priced. Uh, you can grab a drink, you know, our, our entry sort of alcoholic drink would be a beer, which would be around six, seven pounds or uh, 10, 11 dollars. Um, but then we've got a whole range of uh, cocktails, wines, all that sort of thing. So you can really craft your experience, but uh, you get good value for a $50 spend. You're going to get your golf, you'll get a couple of drinks and you'll get some food as well. So uh, in terms of the amount of time and what you get for your money, it's a really great deal. Yeah. And if you're not drinking, then you're entertaining yourself for two, three hours, actually, at a very reasonable cost, um, I would suggest, compared to, to other forms of entertainment as well. Um, are you profitable in the London locations? Yes, we've been profitable um, since we got open. Uh, wow. Business is great. Obviously, what we have is we are in the hospitality industry. We have our food and beverage revenue streams. But what kind of gives us the special source is that we've got a third revenue stream in terms of the competitive activity, the crazy golf. So at the moment, it's obviously very tricky for hospitality venues with this uh, inflation, uh, a lot of the fixed costs going up. We're in the cost of living crisis where people are um, really having to think about their money. Um, but having that third revenue stream and offering so much value for money as we do in a whole rounded experience um, is making us really well placed to weather the storms. And Vegas and Dubai set to open next year. How quickly do you think you can make those profitable given all the challenges that you just described, which I think operate pretty much everywhere in the world? 
plus high rent. Yeah, we're definitely seeing global headwinds. Um, but yeah, we're opening our first franchise in Dubai in March next year. Um, I think that's going to be great. You know, Dubai, there's some pretty hot temperatures and people definitely look for things to do with activities where they can get out of the sun. Um, and there's definitely a party scene in Dubai. So I think we're going to blend in well there. And then in September, we'll be opening in Las Vegas in the Mandalay Bay uh, Resort and Casino, which is um, the kind of culmination of a lot of our ambitions. Ten years after we opened our pop-up in uh, East London, we'll be opening our Vegas site. And that's going to be our biggest one yet, 40,000 square feet and with wow. five courses. So, wow. you know, these are big endeavours, but at the, le the trade levels um, that we're used to operating at and um, kind of, like I say, the popularity of the venues, um, they pay back in sort of two and a half to three years on average. So um, it's a pretty good ROI. Yeah. Who chose the name Swingers, by the way? Is that, is that your fault? Because I'm sure you've had a few people turning up expecting something completely different than uh, crazy it's, golf. Yeah, it definitely, <laughs> it definitely raises a few eyebrows. We, when we sat about thinking uh, we were going to create a crazy golf venue, I think in the first half an hour, the name Swingers was mooted. And once we thought about that, there wasn't really anything else we could call it. So <laughs> you do get a few calls to our reception team where they definitely like, think they're calling something else. But we soon <laughs> set them straight. And once you know I'm what sure. we are, you soon forget about the other meanings. <laughs> I'm going to say nothing more before I get myself into trouble. Matt, great to chat to you. Thank you so much and good luck with the openings and progress. The uh, co-founder and co-CEO at Swingers there. Stay with CNN. Coming up, World Cup mania reaching fever pitch for England and Spain as they head to the final in Sydney. We've got the latest. An emotional and hugely successful Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand heading towards a big finish. The stage is set for the final this weekend. England meeting Spain on the pitch to determine the world champions. And before that, of course, too, on Saturday, Australia take on Sweden in their match to decide third place. Andy Scholes joins us now. Andy, the all-important question with clearly no bias at all is, will the Lionesses be <laughs> roaring along with the rest of the country on Sunday? Well, you know, Julia, there could be quite the party there in England on Sunday. Oh, you know, they yes. haven't had a team in a World Cup final since 1966 when the men made it and won it. But this is the first ever appearance for the women. And it's been quite a run for the Lionesses. You know, they won their first ever Euros title on home soil last year. And England striker Alicia Russo, she says this team is confident heading into Sunday's final. All I want to do is go out and obviously put on a performance we're proud of and obviously win. We go into every game. We started this tournament wanting to win seven games um, and that's still the message. And this is the last one to go and we're all really locked in. Yeah, now a big question for the team heading into this final match is will their young star Lauren James start? You know, she was suspended for the last two matches for stomping on a Nigerian player. So it'll be interesting to see if she plays uh, or comes on as a sub in this one. Now, it's actually Spain that is the slight favorite for the game on Sunday. And that probably has something to do with their amazing breakout star Salma Parlueo. She's been just playing incredible. The 19-year-old had the game-winning goal against the Netherlands and then another goal against Sweden. And Paolo Ayo, you know, coming on as a sub both times. And, you know, Julia, if Spain 
uh, is able to win it all. And, I mean, if she scores even more goals, I mean, she's certainly going to be considered one of the breakout stars of this tournament. 19 years old, Julia. Can you yeah. imagine being on that stage at that age? <laughs> She's absolutely fabulous, and um, we adore her. But hey, the English like being underdogs, so I, I don't mind. Um, I don't mind those odds. But can we also, for a second, talk about Australia too? Clearly, heartbreak for them that they're not playing in the final. But what's the chances that they actually manage to win third place on Saturday? Well, yeah, well, obviously Australia would just love to have been playing in that final on Sunday. That would have just a dream come true. But they could still end their hosting duties, you know, on a positive note. The Matildas. Going to take on Sweden in the third place game on Saturday. Now, Australia, they've never finished better than six. So ending their World Cup with a win in third place uh, is certainly going to be pretty cool for them. They've already done better than they ever have. Sweden, meanwhile, you know, they would also love to cap off a World Cup with a win. They've had just an incredible tournament. You remember, they knocked out the giants of the tournament in the U.S. and Japan and Sweden, you know, they're, they're always so good, but kind of always the bridesmaid, not the bride, Julia. They finished top four and five of the nine World Cups, including this one. They got silver in the past two Olympics. You know, so once again, not going to win it all, but always one of the best. Yes. And what will can we say? Good luck, Spain. Really good luck, England. No bias. Right. <laughs> Thank you. I'll say it, not you. And that's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. See you next week. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.